0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today, Keegan Chandler joins me once again to talk theology. If you haven't yet heard his story, check out Interview 8, a restorationist finds the God of Jesus. In this episode, I ask Chandler about his book, The God of Jesus. If you are at all interested in the history of ideas that influenced what Christians in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries believed about Jesus, this show is for you. Chandler addresses how Plato's Greek philosophy influenced Christian theologians, as well as how the Gnostics not only anticipated much Trinitarian language, but also how they influenced Orthodox theology. After exposing the pagan influences on the development of the Trinity, Chandler goes on to offer a better way of reading the New Testament, that is, through the lens of Second Temple Judaism. Instead of reading later ideas into Scripture, why not read it in light of the Hebrew Bible and contemporary Jewish literature, like the Dead Sea Scrolls? Some of what we say here might be a bit challenging theologically for you, but I think it's good to stretch yourself and understand the story behind where these various ideas came from. I think it can really help you to not only dispel some myths that are always floating around in the air about where... The idea of Jesus becoming God came from, but also can help us avoid making similar mistakes in our own time. So here now is interview number nine, Pagan Influences on the Development of the Trinity, with Keegan Chandler. Welcome back, Keegan Chandler, to talk about your book today. Yes. And so it's titled, The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma, the Recovery of New Testament Theology. I love the title. I think titles title should be long and descriptive, and so you get high marks on both right there. And it looks like it's weighing in at around 543 pages. So you do not cheap out on content here either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like I cheaped out on myself, because if I really had everything in the book that I wanted, it probably would have been three times as long. But then right. no one would read it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that would shrink the number of people that finished the book by probably one-third.
1: <laughs> right. It could make a great paperweight, though.
0: Yes, it would. So here's the first question I have for you, and that is that since we already have so many books on biblical Unitarianism, what made you want to write this book, and what do you hope to accomplish with your readers for this book?
1: Well, first of all, yes, there have been so many important books written by biblical Unitarians over the years. First of all, I would like to cite all of the books of the New Testament, (laughs) but seriously. uh, But no, there was a great Unitarian revival starting in Europe in the 16th century, reaching its zenith perhaps in the 18th century. I know you've done a lot of study on this. Dozens and dozens of great works from that time period, and in our own time, there are so many wonderful books. The work of Sir Anthony Buzzard and others have been so inspirational for so many people, myself included but i believe that my own humble volume is a fairly unique contribution at least amongst the literature in our own time it's unique in its format uh, much of its content and approach and particularly in several of the ways that it considers the doctrine of the trinity through looking at some areas of church history which haven't yet been fully investigated um so i'll give you a little general overview here and then we may be able to get into some specifics But the book itself is a product of a nearly three-year-long investigation into the doctrine of the Trinity, its history, and ultimately its impact on what are, to this day, very, very popular readings of the New Testament. It's fast-paced. It is information-packed. Like you said, it goes through nearly 500 years of church controversy over the Trinity, and at the end provides some answers for some of the more challenging aspects of the New Testament today for modern readers. Now, the first part covers that developmental history of the Orthodox Trinity doctrine, some some of its early challenges and challengers. Some people were usually uh, not made very aware of. So I'm looking to shed some light in that first part of the book on the philosophical principles of the creedal Christianity, which eventually came out of the 4th century. So I, I look at the creeds, the external philosophies, which contributed to them in so many important ways. And even the very political world, which finally laid those creeds down for Christianity. In the second part of the book, I take a look at the New Testament in light of that history that we had just encountered. So I take a look at the very vibrant world of first century Judaism, Jesus and his Jewish disciples teachings set within that world. So I'm looking at information that we've discerned from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from other Jewish literature about first century Jewish thought which is, you know, an ever expanding field even today and So I expound on the biblical Unitarian interpretation of the New Testament, which is one that I believe, and I know that you believe, takes all of that history and all of that language and culture into account far, far better than its rival interpretations. So I'm looking to answer a couple of questions in the book and questions which I believe a lot of readers have had for a long time. Uh, Number one, where and how did we get those creedal statements, which so many Christians today are convinced define true Christianity? And what place, if any, do those philosophical concerns that are found in the creeds, what place do those have in the historical theology of Jesus? And so in light of that history about the Trinity and the history of the the first century Jewish world, we're we're trying to answer whether or not the orthodox interpretation of the Bible really is our very best option, right? Or or is it an inferior theory? Is Is the Christian Trinity the best answer that we have today for that question of who is the God of Jesus? Who is the God of the historical Jesus? So that's a basic overview of the book, and we can maybe get into some more details here.
0: Would it be fair for me to summarize part one as, where did the Trinity come from? And then part two is, what does the Bible teach about God and Jesus?
1: Yes, that's right. And the subtitle for the book is The Recovery of New Testament Theology. So part one is called The Eclipse, and it's essentially what happened— and part two is called Recovery. So now that we know what happened, how do we get it
0: back? Ah, okay. Very good. So you really wrote two books
1: here. I agonized whether or not it was two books. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's part of the uniqueness of my approach is that I really think you can't have one without the other. This is how I myself came to the biblical Unitarian perspective. I was looking to answer that question who was the first Trinitarian, and was that Jesus? Right. So I think it's very powerful, it's a very unique way to deliver this message uh, uh, out to people, is to have them consider both. Yeah,
0: now that I've heard your story in more detail, this totally does make sense, because your own, which we talked about last time, your own discovery of this subject began really with doing the research on the history of the Trinity and discovering what actually happened to get this doctrine to be promoted and accepted by the Church. And then you were working through the biblical passages that were relevant to the subject later on. So for part one, which is called The Eclipse, the main idea here is that Christianity has gotten off track And that culminates with the Trinity, and I noticed that you also have a lot about Gnosticism and the Gnostics and some of these other groups that mainline Christians don't end up talking about very much. That's right. And so could you talk a little bit about why you felt it was important to dig up information about the Gnostics and about the Docetists and these other sort of like lesser known Christian groups that did not win, in the end, the hearts and minds of the majority.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, my argument for part one is that the biblical interpretations of later Christian orthodoxy were not communicated by the Jewish scriptures alone, but that later Christians— and grafted external principles onto those scriptures. In other words, they were reading the Bible through an alien philosophical worldview, and in the end, they transformed that original Jewish New Testament faith into something which even the first Jewish Christians, and I would argue even Jesus himself, wouldn't have tolerated, probably wouldn't have even understood it. Right. So my argument in part one is that the orthodox dogma about God, the doctrine of the Trinity, is really the product of an unnecessary problem-solving. The philosophers of the late Roman Empire, they're attempting to unravel two non-issues. First, what was Christianity's implication for the various Greek philosophies of their day? If this Jesus thing was going to have very much success amongst the academics in the Roman Empire, then in their view, Christianity needed to be able to mesh with that academic intellectual establishment or even to outperform them philosophically. The second non-issue that they're trying to solve is what they perceive to be inconsistencies between the Old and New Testaments. You know, in the Gospels particularly in John, these church fathers believed that there was the incarnation of a second divine being there. And this information, it just needed to make sense in light of, of monotheism. Now, I'll say that the philosophical solutions that these individuals came up with as they're trying to solve these alleged inconsistencies, I mean, they're ingenious. I mean, they really are uh, incredible at times. But I very strongly believe and argue in the book that the problems that these solutions were created for didn't actually exist. Right. Any inconsistencies that the Gentile philosophers are detecting in the New Testament are actually misunderstandings. They're caused mostly by their separation from the Jewish worldview. And the conclusions, on the other hand, that they ultimately did come to about the God and and Jesus who are in the Bible, were enabled only by their Platonic and surprisingly even Gnostic saturation. So it was really these two stumbling blocks. On the one hand, the disconnect from the Jews and, and the saturation in Hellenistic formulae. And I think this was enough to skew the minds of the early Christians, to the effect that they not only mishandled the original Jewish faith once delivered to the saints, as we say, uh, but in the end they had inadvertently, tragically even, created an entirely new faith. And the problems with this are huge. To speak about Gnosticism for a minute, um, this is one of my main areas of research, and I don't think we really have time to get into all the details about Gnosticism, but I would say my book might be a good place to start for your listeners, or there are tons of other books out there on what the Gnostic family of Christianities were. But needless to say, I think the interest in the various Christian Gnostic groups has undoubtedly increased in the last, say, 50 to, to 70 years, starting with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi codices. And the discovery of those Gnostic books has really helped to reshape what we know about early Christianity. Most Christians today have been led to believe that Christian orthodoxy has just always existed. All legitimate Christians have always believed in the same thing. They've always taught the Trinity, for example. And according to this uh, very whitewashed, very sanitized picture you know everyone held to this theological structure until later innovators, you know the usual villains like Arius came along to suddenly challenge it. And and this is the portrait of church history that can be found in most mainstream books, the books you can find in Christian bookstores. But just like the Dead Sea Scrolls are working to clarify for us what Judaism was like in the 1st century, At the same time, the Nag Hammadi books, uh, which were actually discovered at the same time, but just nobody knows about them, they are working in the other direction to clarify what early Christianity was like. So you've got two forces, one working from Judaism, one working from Gnostic Christianity, and they're both kind of moving in and zeroing in on that earliest Jesus movement. So what are the Nag Hammadi texts? What is all that looking into this Gnostic history? What does that show us? Well, it provides a very different picture of Christian beginnings than what we've been told. Uh, You find a Christianity which is diverse from the beginning. The first two centuries of Christianity, therefore, they didn't have some monolithic orthodoxy, which was just unilaterally defining Christian beliefs and all valid interpretations of the New Testament. So for us, that just begins to— crack open the possibility that the allegedly foundational doctrines of the so-called ecumenical councils, well, maybe they weren't so foundational after all. And there were some very, very important and not widely discussed things that were happening in the church in those first couple of centuries that more people need to be made aware of. And most importantly was this encounter with Christian Gnosticism. It was a very painful very dramatic encounter really and one which i believe that christianity has yet to recover from gnosis is it's like this sickness that christianity never really got over
0: let me just pause you right there you said a word earlier that i don't know if everyone would know what you mean the word platonic that pertains to the philosopher plato and his teachings i think the average person who hears the term platonic thinks you're talking about relationships that are (laughs) non-romantic. So maybe just back up a moment and talk for a moment about Plato the Philosopher and why this person living centuries before Christ has anything to do with anything related to the development of Christian theology in the second, third, and fourth centuries. Sure.
1: So um, after Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world, the Greek civilization was able to export its philosophical and religious thought pretty much everywhere. And one of the most influential thinkers is the philosopher Plato. And what he he is responsible for a variety of interesting philosophical concepts, that ultimately come to play a major, major part in the, in the world in which Christianity was developing in. So Plato is envisioning this higher world of, of the forms, and then there's a lower world. There's an ontological or metaphysical dualism that he is teaching, and that kind of thinking enabled all sorts of other philosophies to come into being. Many of the philosophies that are popular in the uh, late Roman Empire when Christianity is being born are just evolutions of some of those original Platonic ideas. So the work of Plotinus and Christian Gnosticism is really one outcropping of Platonic belief. In Alexandria in particular, and in Rome as well, there was this vast interest in religious syncretism. So they're combining Platonism with Judaism. They're combining it with Persian Zoroastrianism and all kinds of things. And here comes the Jesus movement coming out of uh, Palestine, being exported out uh, from there. And it's just subsumed into all of this. And they begin reading the New Testament in a very, very peculiar way. So they're reading the New Testament, not, say, as traditionalist Palestinian Jews, but some of these Gentile converts are reading the New Testament according to a Platonic worldview, and even uh, some methods of interpretations that they learned from the Stoic philosophers, and this is causing them to see just all kinds of things. They're very good at discovering hidden meanings in the New Testament. Here is a reason why this historical interchange between Plato and the Gnostics and Jewish Christianity. Here's one reason why this is is important to answer your earlier question. All of the church fathers, the Greek and Latin fathers, they've told us themselves that they're Platonists, that they love Plato, right? This pagan philosophy. And over the years, Christians have not really had very much of a problem with this. I have a problem with it. But I remember even a few years ago, Sean, I was blown away. I saw a major Christian store, and they were actually selling the works of Plato, uh, a pagan philosopher in this big set. It was like a buy 10 volumes, get one free special or something. Uh And they were trying to sell them to you, and they were marketing it as, hey, buy these books, and it will help you understand your Christian faith better. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. They (laughs) – They agree that Christianity was in the early centuries saturated in this Platonic philosophy and it doesn't bother them just like it didn't bother the church fathers, right? This was the, the Platonism was the established academic standard. So Christianity has got to be able to fit with this somehow, right? Right. Uh, But here's something interesting. All of the major church fathers whom Trinitarians today hold in high regard They may accept Platonism, but they very strongly condemn Gnosticism. They see that as a serious perversion. They strongly condemn uh, Gnostic Christology in particular, and they should. We even have evidence that the Apostle John himself in his epistles and probably in his gospel as well strongly opposed Gnostic Christologies. Gnostic visions of Jesus as a divine and spiritual being coming down out of the heavens to to enlighten mankind which is what they were teaching however here's the problem the Christians who we find using the specific metaphysical principles of Trinitarianism in those first few centuries of the church were in fact the Gnostics despite the very long battles that the proto-orthodox are having against the Gnostics, scholars today, they'll show us that Gnosticism had a very, very deep, very far-reaching effect on the doctrines of the Church, specifically the Trinity as it developed. So I suggest that a great deal of later Orthodox doctrine about God and Jesus actually represents sort of the consequences of proto orthodoxies very early encounter with Gnosticism, I I think Christianity was able to retrace Gnostic theology, to kind of repackage it in the 4th century uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity and in visions of Jesus and elsewhere, only because it had been saturated in those Gnostic sensibilities and concerns in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. So what would be
0: some specific parallels between Gnostic theology and the Trinity idea as it ended up developing?
1: Sure. So one of the things I go into uh, in in my book is how they're viewing uh, the divine substance or the divine essence. Uh, If you look in the texts of Nag Hammadi and elsewhere, you'll find that it is the Gnostics who are the ones who are pioneering these ideas of plurality within unity, of defining the Greek philosophical word Hypostasis along those personal lines, you know, as a person. Some of these things which we identify today as very Trinitarian or very Orthodox actually appear to have their genesis in some of these very, very early speculations that the Gnostics are having. For example, Plotinus, the so called founder of Neoplatonism, is often credited for some of the development of the ideas of emanation or procession. Right, and you can see some of those uh, ideas still intact inside of the, the Orthodox creeds with the procession of the Holy Spirit. Right, Plotinus is often credited as the one who came up with that and, and all the church Fathers being Neoplatonists. It's very easy to identify him as the source of that, but there's a lot of research that's come out in the last couple of decades that shows that the Gnostics are actually the ones who are beginning to form these ideas and then... Essentially, Plotinus is adapting those concerns into his own theology, which in turn is getting passed on to onto the Christians. But sometimes the the interchange between the Gnostics and the Trinitarians is, is even more direct. And I think the best place to locate that interchange is in Christology. This was happening in Alexandria and in Rome, in the philosophical centers of the empire, and especially. In Ephesus, Gnosticism was having a a serious effect on all Christian thinking. It was very, very popular. I think uh, the history of Christianity is far more Gnostic in its early years than people have been allowed to believe. And sometimes it's difficult for us to see exactly how Gnostic ideas affected Trinitarian development or Christological development. And that's because the Gnostic ideas underwent a sort of transformation or probably a better word would be a sanitization. Fathers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen and others, they were on the one hand arguing against the Gnostics and at the same time adapting some of their concerns into their own systems. So we had what's been called a sort of crypto-Gnosticism that's taking shape in Egyptian Christianity in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which is giving us certain features like the eternal generation of the sun and and some other things. And this ultimately is the kind of activity that set the stage for the very radical developments that are ran through in the 4th century. At the end of that process, we find this Trinitarian Jesus who shares many fundamental features with the Gnostic families of Christologies. So the essence of the Docetic Gnostic Christology that you mentioned earlier was that Christ is not a man, but He's God who took on the form of a man to Himself, and in uh, the Sorinthian and the Valentinian Noster Christologies too, and there's a couple of those. Uh, Christ is also not a man, but the Savior is God who has eclipsed a human being and ultimately subjected His properties to uh, His divine personal center. Um, while at the same time preserving a complete and functional human nature. And all of these different Gnostic Christologies, at the very least, align with Christian orthodoxy on the point that the divine savior was not a man, but he is God united with human properties in some way.
0: Do you think they had a problem with the idea of humanity that, it was unfitting for some reason for the savior of the world to himself be a human
1: being? Absolutely. Christian Gnosticism is predicated upon a Platonic worldview which sees the material world as somehow broken or imperfect and the highest, best, most unchanging principles belong to that higher world. And that dualism played a major part in Gnostic Christology. We, they would say, are divine sparks trapped inside of a broken or corrupt existence. The Gnostic Christians even went so far, uh, going beyond the Platonists, they went so far as to say that the demiurge or the God who created this world was actually evil or wicked or incompetent or both. And so our goal is to kind of escape the, the body But that's not the view that I see uh, Judaism having. I find Judaism holding uh, to a very high view of humanity. I think we see that in the Psalms and Psalm 8 and all the way through the New Testament. And Jesus is certainly representative of the high view of humanity that the Bible has. And that just contrasted with what the Gnostics were saying. The Gnostics said, we have to get out of this. There, there's no way that we can do any of this. It's This world is so broken, and so are we. And you see this attitude come out in church fathers like Augustine of Hippo. Most people don't know this, but Augustine of Hippo, who is one of the most influential Christian writers ever, who himself wrote many books on the Trinity and con- contributed a lot to that thought, he was actually Uh, a former Gnostic, a former Manichaean Gnostic. He was a a hearer in that community for over 10 years. And that thinking, uh, that world, I should say, ultimately contributed to his own very, very low view of humanity. So once all of that set in, uh, in the fourth century, it became increasingly hard for Christians to view humanity as somehow capable of, of doing the things that Jesus did and uh, just served to cement all of those creedal decisions that they had made all throughout that century even further.
0: So other than these Gnostic discoveries you made as being influential in the development of the Trinity idea, what would you say would be the most surprising facts that you came
1: across in your research? Well, the great affinity that some of these basic Gnostic ideas have with Orthodox Trinitarianism. And another thing that really shocked me was the highly political nature of these Christological controversies and the degree to which the Roman state had a hand in deciding exactly what was going to go down on the books. Most people are completely unaware that Nicaea was not the final nail in the coffin for the idea that Jesus isn't God. I've got a a book here on my shelf, a church history sampler kind of book that you could pick up at a Christian bookstore, and if you flip to the page on Nicaea, it says Nicaea settled the controversy, you know, over who Jesus was. It was just over. <laughs> now I know that you know, Sean, in your own study, that's so, so irritating is so irritating. That's just absolutely not the case. The homoousian doctrine that was introduced at Nicaea, as you'll see in the book, was not a part of Orthodox Christian confession. It was seen and had been seen for many years as a very alien term. In fact, in 268, it was actually rejected in a council of the Church of the Synod of Antioch. The the central feature of Nicaea, it was not an encapsulation of what all Christians had just always believed for yeah, hundreds right. of years until Arius came along. The yeah. um, Lucian was seen as something very, very alien, and as you'll see in the book, this was not something that the, that the parties involved at Nicaea were actually comfortable with.
0: Let me take you back before you started doing the research on this to when you were a happy, confident evangelical. I wonder, what was your perception of Arius at that time? You know, had you ever heard of him, or was it just like, there's this weirdo that had these bizarre ideas
1: and the church defeated him? Sure. Well, I perceived Arius or any of these conflicts through the lens of that evangelical upbringing that teaches me that Jehovah's Witnesses are cultists who are just resurrecting long-dead heresies, and this has all been settled, and you don't really need to worry about it. I knew who some of these characters were, but I just assumed, well, God must have been the one that orchestrated these decisions. <laughs> right. God was
0: providentially involved in historical in development. Yeah.
1: He was in it. He was there guiding the council's decisions. Yeah. And I'm sorry, when you crack open just any history book on this topic, you very quickly find a lot of reasons to doubt that. Yeah, I mean, the sheer criminality and political chicanery that is involved to lay some of these things down the bribery the murders it's just really really incredible and that controversy is what i want to bring out that's what i want to show people that this was not some open and shut thing that was settled in uh, in nicaea in turkey in 325 in fact immediately after the conclusion of nicaea the homoousian the idea that Jesus and God the Father are of the same substance or consubstantial, it was overturned repeatedly over and over again by major councils of the church, some of which had attendees of bishops which doubled that of the population of Nicaea. And there's just an entire sordid history there that I believe has been whitewashed. It's been kept out of view. Uh, At the end of the 4th century, they are effectively going back and rewriting the history books to make it seem like this is just what everyone had always believed. This is not just me saying that. This is just the standard understanding that modern scholars have. So I think it's our job for people who are interested in this, who have the energy to do all of this, to bring some of this scholarly awareness of the real climate of the development of Christianity, to bring that down into you know, the real world for people to take a look at. And I think when people do that, they're going to be very surprised and it's at least going to provide a basis for questioning.
0: Yeah. I think what you have is really two options. One is to believe the myth of Trinitarian primacy, the idea that Jesus taught the Trinity as some sort of uh, oral tradition, I suppose, apart from what we have in the Scriptures, and that all the apostles believed in it, and they taught it as well, though, of course, once again, we don't see them doing that in the Scriptures, and that this idea was well understood and accepted by the Church uh, for the first 300 years until this wacko Arius came in, this upstart who challenged the long-held belief that Jesus is God as the Father is God and as the Holy Spirit is God— And that after the Church defeated him, like a disease, the body of Christ was able to stamp him out and his ideas. And anyone who brings up the subject after that, hey, we've already been there, dealt with that. We have the antibodies, (laughs) and (laughs) we can easily defeat you again by basically smearing you and lumping you in with other weirdo groups that also deny it. So that's one option. The other option is to do the hard work and to not just rely on Christian apologists who are obviously arguing one particular perspective, but go to some of the more historically-minded scholars, like R.P.C. Hansen, for example, in his search for a Christian doctrine of God, or Richard Rubenstein, and I'm sure these are names that are not unfamiliar to you as well, Keegan. And right. what you do is you you look at these people that are not arguing for the Trinity, they're just doing history, and you read what actually happened back there, or get into the primary sources yourselves. I mean, there are a number of websites now online that address the fourth century or address Tertullian's writings. Uh, certainly Origins stuff is available, and we have org where you can access out-of-copyright versions of many of the early Christian writings and do the hard work to figure it out for yourself. I feel like you, you've done that, and that's what this book does, is it sort of gives, gives people access to that whole world of what is not talked about in church, certainly, or even in seminary many times where they're just going to give you the whitewashed version of the history. So I think this book is definitely, it's definitely filling a, a niche that needs to be filled in order that people can see what actually happened. It's almost like you're doing investigative work here, Keegan, where you're digging up what actually happened around the crime scene of the identity theft of the Son of God. And... Honestly, this this could almost be like volume one, (laughs) (laughs) because there's just so much, like you said, there's so much material out there, but uh, sadly, many of us are not able to read (laughs) all the material that we would like to. Let's jump into part two here and talk about your approach. Now, for part one, you sort of started with the whole issue of Plato's philosophy and the Gnostic... Uh, amalgamation of Plato with the biblical Genesis and the various other mythic ideas that they had in the stew, so to speak. Now, for part two, you're going to start with a Jewish worldview, a Jewish perspective on who is God, what is the Messiah supposed to do, and all this sort of thing. Briefly, make your case a little bit here. Why start from a Jewish perspective?
1: Sure. Part two uh, is, is very important because we just got through in part one all of this incredible, very painful history. And so now what do we do? Well, it's important to look at the Jewish documents of the New Testament through a Jewish lens. Remember, that's where the church fathers, I believe, went astray. It's when they were disconnected from that Jewish uh, worldview, and they adopted instead a Platonic and unfortunately many times even Gnostic outlook. So I think if we're going to reconsider what the New Testament actually does mean, then we need to to try to get back to basics there. So my overarching questions i'm looking to ask in part two is what does the new testament mean when it talks about god what does jesus actually mean when he talks about god i think in light of all the evidence what we ultimately find is that jesus who isn't god himself he doesn't claim or think that he himself is that one god he's not the spiritual divine being of gnosticism instead he's someone who has a god Someone who genuinely worships a God, the ancient God of Israel. I love that verse in John uh, when Jesus says, It is my Father about whom you say he is our God. So he's working through this as well. Who do the Jews say is their God? You know, over the years, so many people have considered Jesus to be the object, the objective of, of theology itself. Not necessarily as someone who actually has a theology, but he does, and it's an acutely Jewish one. And when we're looking at the theology uh, of Jesus, we've got to make sure we keep it in that first century Jewish worldview as opposed to a fourth century Greco-Roman worldview, which is concerned with many different things that uh, Jesus just is not. So returning to the Jewishness of the New Testament, to the Jewishness of Jesus is our starting point. And when we do that, we very easily, very quickly recognize that there is no evidence that Jesus was educated in any of those uh, Greek philosophical schools. Now, Sean, I'll, I need to mention this. Uh, one mistake that a lot of people make when they're looking into these matters is that they tend to conflate all of the Judaisms together. Right. First century Judaism is very diverse. Just like modern day Christianity is diverse, we've talked a lot about a lot of denominations today. But there were Judaism's just like there are Christianities. So when we encounter a Jewish text from that period, like the writings of the New Testament, I think we should first try to identify which Judaism are they representative of. There is a world of difference between the mystical Hellenistic Judaism of Philo, for example. Who was actively combining platonic and stoic philosophy with judaism there's a difference between that and the judaism of say james and peter and when we look at jesus it's clear to me that the mystical hellenistic judaism that syncretistic judaism of philo did not form the background of jesus thought Rather, it was a more uh, traditionalist Palestinian Judaism that formed that background. And so this, for us, forms a sort of key for interpreting some of the more challenging sayings of Jesus, say, in the Gospel of John and even in Paul. And the point is is that Paul and John can contextualize their Gospel, even in, in Greek categories, and still not form the basis of their own thought. And I think this kind of analysis can help us understand why John and a few times with Paul appears to represent some concepts which kind of sound Trinitarian at times. But I I think the Dead Sea Scrolls and other Jewish literature have come a long way in helping us to better identify what they're actually saying, what is actually happening in the New Testament. Uh, For example, language and ideas which Christians have long taught us plainly indicate Trinitarian principles right, so uh, the heavenly language of Jesus and the Gospel of John, Uh, you know, we find some of these ideas actually in the contemporary Jewish literature, and we know that they weren't Trinitarians. The Qumran community in particular, responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, they really demonstrate pretty surprising sympathy with the sensibilities, uh, with the exegetical habits of the First Jesus community. Uh, so much so that I wouldn't even put a break between Judaism and Christianity as two different religions. The first Jew- Jewish Christians certainly saw Jesus as the Messiah. They may have had a new attitude towards the Gentile, and certain eschatological expectations are thought to be fulfilled by them, and others are drawing near even now. But there's nothing, there's nothing, Sean. In the first Christians teaching about God, which pushed them beyond the boundaries of that very Jewish identity, the first Christians are in no way challenging the established monotheism, uh, a monotheism which had so alienated their people from the outside world. And that's why we don't encounter arguments about monotheism in the New Testament.
0: Yes, there is apparently a deafening silence on the question of redefining God, (laughs) And, uh, you know, like in the Gospel of John in particular, which of course is the most Unitarian text in the entire Bible, um, (laughs) ironically, you have all these statements where Jesus is clarifying his relationship with God, and then there are a few where his Jewish interlocutors, his critics, misunderstand him, and often, more often than not, what we find is uh, evangelical apologists or Trinitarian apologists of whatever stripe— seizing upon the misunderstanding of Jesus' critics Absolutely. and quoting that back to us as evidence that Jesus was claiming to be God.
1: That's and right.
0: It's just like, wait a second, you do realize you're quoting the person who's criticizing Jesus, right? <laughs> this is one of these issues where if you if you start with the assumption of monotheism, and or let me say it this way, Jewish monotheism— that we find throughout the Scriptures, we find in the Pharisaic tradition, we find it within Qumran and other places that we have knowledge of, then we start reading the New Testament. You're going to get a different perspective than if you start with later Christian theology, reading that back into the New Testament, or philosophical notions of Plato or the Gnostics, and reading that back into the New Testament. So, what ends up happening here in this section of the book is you you lay out these various it seems like you know you do some positive theology work, but then you lay out some of these misunderstandings that perennially pop up, such as John one one, you know the word in the beginning you have a chapter on the pre-existence, on what it means to be the Son of God, on the worship of Jesus. A lot of times people say, well, if you worship Jesus, then He must be God. And you talk about the Spirit, which is, of course, another of the three legs of the Trinitarian stool. Now, we're not going to have time to get into all these subjects. I'm sure you would be delighted to give each at least an hour. (laughs) Or ten. Or Uh, ten. But... uh, (laughs) In, in, in light of, in light of that, you know, people can get the book if they want to access that research that you've done and you've laid out so beautifully for us. I want to ask you a question in discussing this subject with other Trinitarians, especially high level Trinitarian apologists, say for example, like Michael Brown, like James White, they're going to say if you if you're going to come at them with this line of argumentation, they're going to say, well, you're presupposing, Unitarianism. You have a presupposition of Unitarianism that you're using to read the Bible. How would you respond to that sort of a charge?
1: Well, it's not a presupposition, Sean. It's how the Bible is presenting God. The thousands and thousands of singular personal pronouns are obviously presenting a singular person. Right. There's no uh, presupposition. I think... The ball is actually in their court to prove it the other way. We, as biblical Unitarians, are looking for very clear statements. God is one. The Father is the only true God. For us, there is one God, the Father. This describes our doctrine perfectly. I I need no qualification. I need no amplification on that. But the Trinity doesn't have that they are constantly having to qualify. They can't even say that God uh, is one or the Father is the only one who is true God without some kind of qualification. And so what I see is that we are really adhering to what uh, you and I spoke about uh, in the last interview, which is that principle of sola scriptura. We are really trying to do whatever we can to use only the biblical data that is available to us. The doctrine of the Trinity is really built squarely upon inference. They will tell you it's not explicit. It's an implicit doctrine uh, in the Bible. And they say you can find support for it on every page. Well, I can find support for just about anything. But I think it's a much better approach to start with the Bible to start with the Jewish worldview and build only on what you have, and when you when you look at that, you'll see that the, in, in the Bible that there is no distinction within the Godhead ever presented uh, anywhere in Scripture.
0: Right. It's like you're going to study George Washington, the first president of the United States, and in preparation for studying that, what you do is read all of the speeches of Barack Obama. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. If you want to study George Washington, what you do is you read the writings of those who lived around the same time, or you find out what books he himself was reading, and try to get into his thought world, and then interpret his speeches and his actions in light of his own context. And so, like, with with Jesus, we want to understand what he said, what he meant— how we should understand his actions. The way to do that, what I hear you saying here, is that we have to get in the head of first century Judaism, and from the dominant first century Judaistic text is what we call the Old Testament, or they just called the Bible. And in there, we have all these thousands of references to God with pronouns, and they're singular. And of course, in Hebrew, you have singular verbs as well. So when God acts, he uses a singular verb instead of a plural verb. And on the basis of all that, you're saying, we're not making some sort of presupposition here. What we're doing is just reading Jesus in context, which is like basically another way of saying we're trying to be responsible historians. That's right. Well, I I appreciate that. I think that's definitely... A good approach that you use in this book. And it really does fit in with so much New Testament scholarship and historical Jesus scholarship today, taking Second Temple Judaism or First Century Judaism as your starting point. I've got to wind down our conversation now because we're just running out of time here. But one last question I would have for you is what are some of the dangers you see? I mean, I think a lot of people who are listening, that make it this far into our conversation, they're thinking to themselves, some of them perhaps, well, okay, so you you discovered this, you've documented it. What does this really matter? What are some of these dangers in believing that Jesus is God anyhow?
1: Sure, well, I think we probably have to take an, an entire other podcast just to talk about all that. But I will point out one aspect that is very detrimental to the Christian life. Uh, when we believe that Jesus is God, I think we're we're in danger of making one of the most— powerful and central points of our faith into a serious mess and that's the cross we're messing with a very important death of jesus when we say that he's god and this is a good question that you can ask people in your conversations who died who died on the cross was it the son of god the new testament says that it was the son who died so that's the person of the son but if trinitarianism is right and the one person of the son is the divine person the second person of the Trinity, right, who is immortal, then then what even happened? Did no person really die on the cross? Did an abstract human nature die on the cross? Can such a thing like that even die or pay for sins? I mean these are very serious questions, Sean, which most people have just blown off their whole life. And this is only one problem that we run into whenever we – Uh, start saying that Jesus is God. Now, of course, you and I as biblical Unitarians, we have absolutely no rational problem with the death of the Son on the cross, right? Or how that was possible. You know, to this, this is a very straightforward terrible and awe-inspiring thing, but we have no rational problem with it. When we look at this, we see Jesus Christ, a human being, truly suffered and died the death of of a criminal. He's in the ground, and then God, who is someone else, raises this dead man from the dead. This one event really has characterized the Christian faith. I mean, it's one of the Christianity's biggest distinctives from the other Abrahamic religions, right? Because in Islam, Jesus didn't die. In uh, modern Judaism, they believe the Messiah won't die or suffer. But right. for Christians, this is the turnkey of, of the faith, the gospel about the kingdom, You know, which you've done great work on, uh, our own destiny in resurrection ourselves. None of that happens if Jesus didn't really suffer and die. I mean, I, I read in 1 uh, Thessalonians where Paul says that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then God will raise us from the dead. So our hope of resurrection in the life of the age to come, we can't even have that if Jesus didn't die. Uh, and uh, elsewhere, I believe that's in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if Christ was not risen, then your faith is in vain. So if Christ didn't really die and therefore wasn't really raised from the dead, then your, your faith is nothing. That's a pretty big deal. It's very, very important. And you made um, a point earlier uh, that God is immortal. 1 Timothy, is that I think that's six, 616. Yep. It says that God is immortal. Now, what does it mean to be immortal? Well, Trinitarians and others, they really live and die on their definition of death. They think that if they can redefine what death is, then they can get out of this problem. So they're going to define death as the separation of the soul from the body, right? That's all that is. And they'll say that that's what happened on the cross. But um, in line with our earlier conversation, they obviously have a very Platonic pagan view of death, which is not really a death. It's just the crumbling away of a human nature that's attached to an immortal soul. But the the bottom line is, uh, to your point earlier – it doesn't really matter how they define death or try to redefine death because you can't redefine the word immortal. Right. immortal. Immortal just means that whatever death is, you can't do it. So the Trinitarians have a big problem when they say Jesus is God, God can't die, and Jesus died. And you know, so many people will just throw up their hands and call it a mystery. That's what I did for most of my life. But what's interesting, the historical Christians didn't do that. They wanted to try to figure it out. And the first people who were trying to figure that out were actually the Gnostics. In the early centuries, the Gnostics were trying to rationalize the deity of Christ with things like the crucifixion or his suffering and things like that. So some, you know, they said Jesus didn't die at all. Uh, Some said the human Jesus and the divine Christ were actually two different people. Some said it was all a trick and some other guy died in Jesus' place. And that's actually where I believe that Islam gets that. That's actually adapted, I think, from a Gnostic text called the Second Treatise of the Great Sith. But but anyway, all this speculation is coming from trying to figure out how to get around the implications of saying that Jesus is God and God died. And the solutions that they came up with in church history through the Council, weren't really very good solutions. I'm talking about the disputes between Nestorius and Cyril, and all of that is really a rehashing, a repackaging of different Gnostic Christologies that deity of Christ theology just continues to suck you back into. So what's really interesting is that so many Christians today, when they're asked about this very basic, very fundamental point of the faith that Jesus died, and you ask them what happened on the cross, they'll say something like, well, it was only the human nature that died on the cross. Right. Right? The person, the God person, didn't actually suffer on the cross. Well, the problem, there's a few problems with that. First of all, the New Testament doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach it was a nature that died. The New Testament says that it was the son that died. That's Romans 5.10. Eight thirty-two, well, even uh, John three sixteen, right? It's the Son. That's who's given. It's the person of the Son that dies. So that's one problem. Another problem is actually that that answer is not really even in line with historical orthodoxy. Oftentimes, you'll find what modern Trinitarians are trying to teach you is actually the so-called heresy of Nestorianism. That was defeated in the councils, which in turn is actually an old Gnostic Christology repackaged. Nestorius wasn't really teaching two persons, but Cyril said he did, and that's all that matters, right?
0: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I have my own take on Nestorius. I think he was just a <laughs> victim of incredible yes. injustice.
1: That's right. Yeah, Cyril Cyril was essentially a gangster. But. Yeah. So, you know, the reaction that Christianity is having against this so-called Nestorianism is really a reaction, I believe, to a latent Gnosticism that the deity of Christ believers just couldn't ever get away from. So, you know, when an evangelical, you know, is calling you a heretic for what you're saying, Sean, Mm -hmm. and then they say something like, well, only the human nature died, you can shake their hand and welcome them to the heretic club, I guess. (laughs) Uh, The truth is that Cyril and that Orthodox party We're actually working against the idea that just the son's nature suffered. But Cyril's orthodox solution, I'll put a solution in some big air quotes there, wasn't really a solution. They ultimately said that the son suffered impassibly. In other words, he suffered without suffering. So God died without dying. Even today, amongst Trinitarian scholars, there is this hesitation over what really happened on the cross. There's all this qualification going with what should be a very simple point. I remember, uh, for example, reading Wayne Grudem, and he said this. He said, Jesus somehow tasted something of what it was like to go through death. Wow. So it was a taste. It It Sounds
0: pretty vague to me.
1: Yeah, it was just you know something of what it was like. Well, what that tells me is that it didn't really happen, and that's a big problem for me. It's a very dangerous thing, Sean, when we decide to turn the death of Jesus into sort of a question mark. I mean, after all, the New Testament says that this is the cornerstone for Christian belief, right? We were just talking about that. Uh, Paul says, you know, your faith is in vain if you don't get if you don't get this right, if you don't consciously believe that. And as a quick side note, I actually think that the various Gnostic groups had actually proven to be the more more reasonable party than the Trinitarians on this point. So some of those Gnostic Christologies were saying that, well, there was the human Jesus and the Savior, and then there was another person who was the divine person. So they knew that if they're going to say that the Savior is God, then they had to confine that destruction of the cross to another person. They had to, you know, kind of turn it into some kind of illusion. But on the other hand, evangelicals, I think they often try to have their cake and eat it too, to say, you know, that the immortal God could die, that he did die. And, you know, exactly what that means, well, that's just kind of up in the air. It's a question mark. So the important thing to take away from all of this is that Chalcedon didn't really settle the matter. Right, Chalcedon releases a statement which says there's two natures in Jesus, but they don't tell you what that means. It just means you know, they say they're without confusion, change, or division. Okay, so the natures aren't confused together, but they're also not separated either. The Orthodox philosophers will say, well, the death of the Son, the death of God is a mystery. So here we come, full circle, right? They they didn't want to say that it's a mystery up front. They wanted to get in there and figure it out, but in the end they really couldn't. And I think the Trinitarian establishment wants us to think that they have this great complex system that everybody agrees with. And this, this big system that really works somehow on the inside. And, you know, Sean, if you were a scholar, then you'd really get it. But you're just a poor person. And, you know, you don't this doesn't make sense to you because you're just not educated. Right. But What I find is we've had thousands of years of cogitation over this of very educated people catholics willing to give their life for this and at the very end they still can't agree on exactly what it all means or how it works and how it makes sense so you know there may be some reasoning which seems sound on a very superficial level but really in the end it's actually full of problems when you dig into it and i think the the cross of jesus is just one of the things that stands in the way and it's a huge stumbling block for people this is one of the big dangers of going down this road, but that's just, and that's just not a problem uh, for us as biblical Unitarians. And I I take a lot of uh, pride and comfort in that.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us a tour de force of the God of Jesus in light of Christian dogma, the recovery of new Testament theology. I appreciate you taking the time Keegan and, uh, I wish you the best. How can people get in touch with you if they want to get the book or if they want to find out more about you? Sure.
1: So the book is available on Amazon.com. It was uh, published by Restoration Fellowship and uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard. Uh, So you can get the book on Amazon. Uh, Just search my name or The God of Jesus on there and you'll see it. I've also got my website, thegodofjesus.com. And I have the blog that we mentioned earlier, the Buried Deep blog. So that would be burieddeepblog.wordpress.com. So you know, uh, send me some messages. Um, you can uh, find my contact information on there, and I'm looking forward to uh, to speaking with some of your listeners if they have any questions or want to talk more.
0: All right, great. Well, thanks so much for
1: being with me today, Sean. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of all your work. Please keep doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I wonder, do you already own Keegan Chandler's book? If so, I think he would really appreciate it if you took a couple of minutes to sign into Amazon and write him a review. When I checked, only three reviews had been written so far, and one of them simply said, good. If you want to support the spread of the ideas contained in this book, then writing a review will help more people come across the God of Jesus. Next week, we'll get back to our off-script roundtable discussion with Rose Ryder, Dan Fitzsimmons, and myself, and address the question, is Christianity the only way to God? Stay tuned for that. Before wrapping up, I wanted to address a comment that Brian Kelly made on the Facebook page. Please forgive me for forgetting this last week, but I usually just scan the web page for recent comments and not Facebook. But here's what Brian wrote on Offscript 15, Should Christians Celebrate Halloween? This is a topic which has as many takes as it does people discussing it. My children are all grown, so thankfully I don't need to deal with this anymore. One of the issues that my wife and I had was the use of the expression trick or treat. Although it seems innocuous enough, what someone is saying is, give me a treat or I'll do a trick on you. Not exactly what I want my children to learn. It would be interesting if you did an episode that handled the topic of doing things according to your conscience in a more general way. Where do you draw the line between something that can be done as long as your conscience doesn't bother and when is something a sin regardless of your conscience? A small note for Sean, when people say that Luther used bar tunes, it does not mean that he used tavern tunes. It is a musical term that has nothing to do with Christianizing drinking songs. Brian, thanks for the episode suggestion. There's definitely a gray area of acting in accord with one's conscience versus just outright sinning. On the trick-or-treat thing, I think the kids can just say, Happy Halloween, when someone answers the door, and people are pretty much fine with that. The real difficulty, I find, is getting them to say thank you before bolting across the lawn to the next house. As for your point on Luther, I just looked this up, and you are definitely right about this. Thank you for pointing this out. I don't know where I had heard that Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God came from the pub, but apparently it didn't at all. He came up with it on his own. Thank you for your feedback. On Interview 7, A Restorationist Discovers the God of Jesus with Keegan Chandler, Joshua writes, That was awesome, edifying, and heartwarming. An encouragement to be more intellectually engaged with our faith rather than bound by the arbitrarily low intellectual standards of institutional shackles. Just an amazing story. It would be amazing if more people took the history of dogma more seriously. The truth has nothing to fear. And on that same episode, Brian, a different Brian than before, writes, What a great story. I'm anticipating the next installment. Aside from the well-known theological family and Mormon connections, I find his spiritual and theological journey very similar to my own, which is very encouraging. Thanks for sharing this interview. Brian, I thought you might feel a kinder spirit to Keegan. If you're not familiar with Brian's story, check out Interview 5, Seeking Truth, Wherever It Leads. Thank you, Brian Kelly, Joshua, and... Brian Allen, for writing in. I appreciate you guys taking the time to have your voices heard. If you would like to drop a comment, just go on over to restitudio.org where you can find an archive, a bunch of articles, and other resources and links. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and please review Restitudio in iTunes so others can find this podcast. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.